0: Hello curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast for the relentlessly curious. This season, our host and Applied Curiosity Lab's chief curiosity seeker, Becky Saltzman, will be sharing the studio with ACL's chief experience producer and favorite sister, Jennifer Felberg. The lens is, and always will be, curiosity. Each week, fun and formal conversations center around one delectable curiosity bite, designed to give your brain the time and ideas to think about thinking, to flex your curiosity muscle, and maybe even revolutionize the way you think. I must have been 33 mean, I was maybe even maybe somewhere between 30 and 33. And I remember walking into the office and we had a new receptionist and I was singing some song from the radio, some current pop song as I walked in. And she says, oh, that's so cool that you know that song. And I was like, wait, what? She was maybe 25. It might have been a six year difference between us, maybe seven. I was shocked. Because I thought, wow, she had seen me coming and going. I thought that her impression of me was one way, and clearly, if she was saying something like that, that I was like knew knew a modern song, that she was perceiving me another way. Then later that day, I go to the grocery store, and I was between a guy and then a younger guy who, again, was maybe in his twenties. And clearly, the other guy had gone on, and he said, "Ma'am, ma'am," and I literally look over my shoulder thinking he must be talking to someone else. And I realized he was talking to me. That was a moment that I was clear that the way I thought I was presenting and the kind of first impression that I was presenting was different than it was, at least to these people. And that leads me to the curiosity bite. Are you ready to take a chomp? Yes, I am. Do you give a more or less accurate first impression than most people? I would think that I give an accurate first impression, but if I think a little bit more, I probably don't. More than most people, less than other people, we're probably similar. I think if people first meet me, they might think I'm, I could give off the impression that I am loud and crazy and outgoing and really have no nervousness around people but as you get to know me, that's just not true, so that's probably not an accurate first impression. Do you think that most people feel that way and we just don't talk about it? I mean, because I think the interesting question is not whether you give an accurate first impression but whether you think you give a more or less accurate first impression than other people. Yeah, I don't think I'm special. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think we we all probably think we don't give an accurate first impression. I don't know that that's true. Do you think that most people think that they don't give an accurate first impression? I was asking my speech and debate kids, and most of them said that they don't feel that they give an accurate first impression. The only one that did is probably my most self-confident one in the bunch oh. said that he did give an accurate impression. First impression but most of them said no everyone thinks that they don't give an accurate first impression then I guess it would be hard to judge whether we give a more accurate first impression or less accurate first impression than most people mm-hmm. I think I'm probably give if everyone feels that they don't give an accurate first impression that I would think that I give a slightly more accurate first impression than most and I'll tell you why that might be, and you might refute this. I haven't given it a lot of thought. So I could be easily, I'm happy to be proven wrong. I'm happy I, for you to be proven wrong as well. <laughs> you look like a s- extremely outgoing person. You have a very expressive face. You're tall. You have a lot of smile to your face. And I think people would think that you're happy and confident and outgoing. hmm But in a lot of ways, you are not that all the time. I mean, you're not. It's not like you're not that. But I mean, it's not like, oh, I'm so excited to get ready to go to this party. (laughs) You know, you're like, oh, I have to go to this party. Never. And I think about my friend Jancy. So Jancy looks like the party gets started when Jancy shows up. And when she gets there, she makes sure that everyone is having a good time. She can't help it. I mean, you walk to the grocery store with her she's putting her hand hey what do you think that's that's some pressure though that's somebody putting pressure on themselves she does because it just drains and drains and drains her and when you see her afterward she is completely drained but people would never assume that about Jancy yep whereas I don't necessarily feel A huge obligation. I do sometimes feel an obligation to keep a conversation going. If there's just quiet, I'll feel like I need to ask questions to kind of generate conversation, but it doesn't feel like a tremendous burden to me. Like I don't leave a party and then need three days of recovery where I just need to sit and be by myself. Whereas some people, they need, like Barkley, he can go to a party and he can engage, but then he'll need his downtime because he's not naturally getting energy from being gregarious. I'm the opposite. I, do not look forward to parties. I do feel a lot of times that a responsibility to make sure that everybody's having a good time, not like everybody, I need to have everybody have a good time. I just feel like people expect me to be the life of the party. And so I have this responsibility to continue that, or they'll be disappointed and not want me there. That's my purpose of being there. But usually after... I leave the party. I think, oh, that was a fun party. I don't need to recover from it. It's just the before the par- and the during. <laughs> Unless I'm the host. And if I'm the host, then I don't have a problem at all. Because you have a role and right. you're busy. Yeah. I like to have a role. I think most people would think that you are much more comfortable socially than you are. Whereas I don't think people would think that I'm much more soci- socially comfortable than I am. Yeah. I might give a different accu- different impression that's not accurate, but I don't feel that I give a completely inaccurate first impression. I think people might assume that you like them more than you do. (laughs) That's not an accurate first impression. But I mean, it may just be because I don't assess whether I like them that much. It's not like I'm talking behind their back saying, oh my God, I really hate this person for this reason and that reason. I just sometimes like them for a certain set of things. And that's what I... I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that has to do with the first impression, though. No, I'm saying that when you are in public and your first impression with your interested questions and your expressive face like I have, that people might think that you are more into them than you actually are. And I believe I'm just fishing Mm because there's not a lot, but I think that that's not exactly accurate. I don't find a whole bunch of time where I think wow, I had to really feign interest there. Every once in a while I do because sometimes you ask people questions and they don't give you anything and you might continue to ask them when you really think peace out, I could be out of here. But I don't I don't know that that's the accurate impression. I do know that experts say and this is what's really interesting when we get into the experts. A lot of this stuff I want to I want to accuse a lot of what we're going to talk about today of being a sort of fact. Straight, straight up sort of fact. Yep. And as we're talking about this, I want to poke at really how they determine this stuff. Something like 55% of first impressions are made by what we see, visual. 38% is the way we hear your first words. And 7% are the actual words you say. Now, (laughs) 100% of your first impression is made up of this. Why wouldn't it be 52%? And if you're going to be talking about something like 55%, there has to be a reason it's 55% and not not 56%. So a lot of these things are sort of facts. And who are these experts? These are people who study social behavior. From PU? A lot of them are from PU. Mm -hmm. One of the most commonly cited studies is actually out of PU, and it's PPU because it's Princeton prestigious. University. And that is researcher Alex Teterov, who had people look at a microsecond of a video of a political candidate. And and he suggested that in that microsecond, subjects could predict with 70% accuracy who would win the election just from that microsecond of tape. Talk about first impressions. So that could be something that's not entirely a sort of fact. True, there's a way to measure it. So that it, it, you can actually call that a study. Some of the things are hard to have a, a way of measuring. Like that 55%. Yeah. Versus, let's say you came to me and you, you were trying to use big words and you were using them out of context. Then it would be much more than 7% of the words you use that would I would use to judge you. Right. To ju- judge your first impression. I would just right. think, okay, you are clearly someone who wants to sound smarter than you are. Those are fancy words. They are fancy words. And that's why 7% of the actual words you say in that case, I might use, it might be 50% or 51%. Mm -hmm. Our first impressions are influenced by a number of factors. And one of them is facial shape. Oh yeah, I saw that. How are you going to manage your facial shape? Well, I have a very pointy chin. You do? And I think. That makes you look like a sharp bitch. Kind of, I think I have a witchy look about me. Do you think that you judge Reese Witherspoon similar? Do you think people? She has think, a pointy chin. That's what I'm saying. Do you think that people think, ooh, Jennifer and Reese Witherspoon? Are We're awesome. like, it's like looking in a mirror. What about <laughs> vocal inflection? You're a voice person. What about vocal inflection? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, I have a difficult time with high voices. Just, it's grating. Why do you have that time with high voice? And I do not like up speaking. What about, about, why do you have a problem with high voice? And I don't like the gravelly at the end. You don't like the gravelly at the end? <laughs> I have a speechy who has a high voice. Well, you mean someone on your speech and debate team. Right. Is that what you call them, speechies? That's what I just called it just now. <laughs> I always wanted to know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> a speechy. Okay. I talk about speech and debate on almost every single podcast. Okay, speechy. But I have a speechy who has a high voice, and we get ballots from the judges every week, and I read all of their, ju- oh. all of their ballots, which is quite fun. Then you learn a lot about first impressions. I do. Oh, that'll be some insights. Okay, sure. but it's specific because they are asked to pay attention to voice inflection, content, body language, just gest- you know, all of those things. But even if they're asked to pay attention, it would be interesting to hear what they mostly call out on the ballot. So what what, what, what would be something interesting that people? Would well, with like? this high-voiced girl, she keeps getting the feedback that she's yelling at them. Oh, because. Sometimes she is. But the other times, I think, the other times, because she has a high voice, it sounds piercing. It mm. sounds painful to the ear. So she has to be a little more careful. And we were, are working with that. We ha- She has to be a little more careful with those high-pitched voices. I'm, ask- I'm working with her how to bring that tone down a little bit. What about attractiveness? Do they ever comment on attractiveness? Well, they're not allowed to talk about their clothes. Because... Before In the past, they would. Mm. And there are people with different socio socioeconomic levels that it's not fair That's to not do that. Fair. I was going to go back to, though, Ginger and I had uh, a pretty big argument about her clothing choices. Mm. And she said, I don't care what p- other people think. And I said that I call BS on that. Because if that were true... You would be wearing makeup on your days off. You would be dressed to the nines. You would be doing your hair. And you don't. So you do care what people think because you alter what you're wearing when you go out. Two things. One, that's a total teenage thing. Well, yeah. I remember when Alice Cooper's manager tried to get some news article published about the fact that parents are wanting Alice Cooper banned and that Alice Cooper was public enemy number one. And he attributed Alice Cooper's assent to that exact thing. And Alice Cooper is the biggest little skinny scrawny nerd. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but That's, that's so funny. But that's how they made him because they knew and predicted that teenagers behave in predictable ways. I don't care what people think and I just want to rebel. Now, if you truly live your life not caring what people think, you're one of two things, a sociopath or a narcissist. And we kind of think, oh, we should care what people think. But if you really don't care about the impression she, that you make... She should go to school naked. <laughs> well, yeah, or or not think about it at all. Or if you don't care what people think, great. Then you don't, that could save you a lot of money because you'd never have to buy another article of clothing for her for the rest of her life. But attractiveness, they're not supposed to comment on... And clothing they're not supposed to comment on. And that's kind of interesting because you shouldn't really be in high school judged based on your socioeconomic status. But the minute you get out of high school and in every other part of society, unfortunately, you are. So, what would be helpful is to say, is there something you could do with your existing budget to make yourself, I don't know. When I talk to my kids about what to wear to tournaments, I try to give them the freedom to choose but it has to do with looking your best if you can whatever your best is if that's what do you mean by your best your best for you, a speech like debate? if you were going to an interview what best would you wear that's professional right and so some of the team wears their best jeans Mm -hmm. and a nice button down shirt Mm -hmm. and that's their best Mm -hmm. some wear a three-piece suit ginger she likes to dress a little sexy with her power heels that's her choice Mm -hmm. so it's there's no specific way you're supposed to dress it's just that you should probably dress a little better than you would than if you were lounging on your couch on a saturday afternoon right what do you think about general emotional state? How do you judge or how do you instruct your speech and debate people? I'll take a minute to articulate what I'm thinking. And maybe it's a bad thing to think. But okay. a couple of debates ago, Amy Klobuchar did a really good job. She seemed kind of presidential and kind of leadership and ish. And she is clearly a good prosecutor. She know, she knows. But what I realized in some of these later debates is that someone who is a good prosecutor, someone who can actually take on a topic, the minute they are the defendant, if they, re- if they respond in a highly emotional way, it really makes you rethink their leadership qualities. And I don't know if that is, I would argue probably it is, more salient for women But when she responded to Pete Buttigieg, who challenged her on something, which is part of the debate, oh, you're just perfect, Pete. I was like, okay, you are not presidential. If that is the best you can do is saying, oh, you're just a jerk, then you (laughs) don't have the emotional fortitude. And people could say, well, Trump's very thin-skinned too. Absolutely. And we don't think he has the presidential fortitude. Yeah, the the emotional (laughs) fortitude. But how do you... How do you advise your kids on emotional state vis-a-vis first impressions in speech and debate? There are certain rules with speech and debate, so that's not fair as far as something more free-range where there aren't rules. In debate, you're not supposed to look at your p- opponent. Oh, you're not? No, you're supposed to look at the judge. Oh. Oh. And I keep instructing my kids not to do that. It's very hard for them. They want to turn toward them and have that person-to-person debate, but they're not supposed to. They're also not supposed to refer to their opponent as he or she or Joe Bubble. What about my opponent? They're supposed to say my opponent. Oh. My opponent referred to... But then you can't name check them. Wait a minute. You can't raise your hand and say, oh, they mentioned me. They mentioned like they do in the presidential (laughs) (laughs) debate. So they're not supposed to do that. No. And what is the reason for that? So they can stay on the topic. They don't do ad hominem arguments where they make, they poke at the person versus the. Well, they do. They do? Yeah. That's called a critique. Oh. And they do. And there's different types of critique. But it's frowned upon and basic it's not frowned upon in certain debates like policy debate but the most of the debates that I judge and the only ones that my team does it is definitely frowned upon stick to the topic Mm. don't get emotional this is about teaching how to have elegant elegant discourse rather than getting all upset and and yelling at the person same with speech there are certain rules that you're supposed to do so that you don't get emotional or wound up in that way but as far as expecting people not to have emotion that does bother me a little bit really why because I'm an emotional person and I think not even I'm that I'm an emotional person but I'm an expressive person like you said Mm -hmm. earlier and I get accused of being emotional and that makes me less authoritative and it bothers me because I do think that there is an element of sexism sexism and I also think there's an element of prejudice against people who are more expressive and outgoing and oh there's oh outgoing because yes yes I believe so because I used to be in these meetings and they were like we really try to focus on the quiet the people that are quiet have really important things to say and they always sit back and we just need to draw that out it's like no, that's not necessarily true. You might be mischaracterizing or you might be thinking about this in a way that is ex- not exactly right because there was a study published in the Journal of Personality, which is a very P I you, I mean, a very prestigious, a very PJ prestigious journal, <laughs> <laughs> but it indicated sure. that perceptions of high self-esteem, which is a socially valuable trait, may account for narcissists strong starts and they had four different experiments and when they viewed photos of targets who had previously com- uh, completed narcissism and self-esteem scale so we based on these scales they were higher or lower in these traits participants rated those who scored the highest on narcissism as the most likable and the highest in self-esteem even more so than non- non-narcissistic people who exhibited equivalent levels of self-esteem. And in one, how, Again, how do you measure that? Well, what they did was they created a measure for self-esteem and narcissism. I mean, all of these things, anything that you diagnose, any mental disorder is a clinical observation. You can't take a blood test for narcissism. Like you're saying, I'm really happy. And they say, no, <laughs> you're not. You're depressed. I can see it. <laughs> no, again. I'm happy. But you know, so these, they measure it like they measure anything. So we just have to put that aside. They even rated... These people higher than non-narcissistic people who exhibited the equivalent levels of self-esteem. So in one of the studies, heterosexual women viewed male target Tinder profiles and they expressed greater interest in meeting potential partners who were more narcissistic as rated on that narcissism narcissism scale. And in other studies, that effect was mediated by estimates of the target self-esteem. So you can actually ask someone how much self-esteem you think you have separate from narcissism and start teasing out those differences. I think ambition is a very challenging thing for women in a way that it is not challenging for men. When men are seen as ambitious, it is completely celebrated where women need to, women can be smart. Women can be strategic, but the minute that they seem ambitious We start viewing them as something we don't want in a leadership role. And maybe I'm just arguing, I'm throwing it out there. You were talking about your meetings when they would say, let someone more quiet. Maybe they They did say that to me, but they were saying that we, (laughs) I just want to clarify. They were like, shut up, Jennifer. We're trying to find someone else to talk. That's not what they were doing. But But I mean, sometimes they ask things and no one else says something and you have something to say. It's like, okay, do we just wait in silence? Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if. By tempering, being aware of the danger of ambition, and you can say, "Screw that! I don't care what you think." Okay, well then you can—you'll land where you land. I mean, sometimes we need to realize that we've got the, what we've got, and we need to—we need to work with it. Like, uh, if you're a highly emotional person, and you're gonna cry—not you, but one is gonna cry. Yeah, you know, not me. I'm you know, never. <laughs> and you're gonna cry when someone challenges you then you need to realize that probably there are going to be certain things like MMA fighting. (laughs) No, here's the thing. I'm just going to use me because that's the example I have. But sometimes when I get very intense or passionate, or even if I watch something that is incredibly amazing, I get teary-eyed. It's just, it's not like I'm crying because I'm upset or anything. It just happens I have no way to control it. And I have been told to not be so emotional. I have been told to smile more. You? You smile a lot? Well, when I've been in meetings, I'll sit and listen. And sometimes I'll have an expressive face because I'm agreeing or not agreeing or whatever. And I've been told those things that are stereotypically, in my opinion, sexist. Do you think that there is any harm in a president of the United States sitting around a table with other leaders and having to work out a solution for Syria with tears running down their face? Maybe not. Because there is this prejudice. Yes. Because women still are, and not not just women cry, I'm not saying that, but because there is this, we can't be, we have to, we have to be more manlike. So no, we cannot be having tears in our eyes. Maybe as we evolve as a human race, there can be room. There's, there could be room for tears. There could be room for, for emotion. There could be room for passion instead of just having to hold everything in and, What if we find that when the parts of the brain that trigger emotion or show a highly emotional state are activated, it is more difficult to make rational decisions than, for example, when moderated anger is activated in the brain? What if we actually found a neurochemical reason? I'm just asking. Yeah, I mean, sure, if we find the reason. But I'm not even saying like a high emotional state. And I understand that if you're in a high emotional state, it is hard to make rational decisions. But I'm saying if I it just the tears come into my eyes and that and there's no way that when you are having these high stakes conversations, people aren't getting emotional. They're just tampering it down so that the other person doesn't see that they're weak. But is, is there value in controlling your emotions? But whether it's anger, sadness, is there value in being able to control your I emotions? I think there's a healthy medium. All I right. think there's that we can have balance. Yes. Can't just be flying off the handle every two seconds, but also suppressing all the time is not necessarily healthy or effective either. So there's room for both. Just like there's room for quiet people and there's equal room for noisy people. And one is not better than the other. And both can have the same motivation. A quiet person can be shy and not want to speak out. And so you're trying to pull out what they have to say. And so can a noisy person. As I've said in many podcasts, I've always been considered a hyper person. Well, that's kept people away from me. It's my my way of being shy, is being hyper. Mm. And so you can't make this assumption that the person that is outspoken and emotional and expressive has a high self-esteem. So what do we do with our first impressions when we know that first impressions are made by very quick, they're made very quickly, they're made by potentially superficial things, but I don't know why they're more superficial than other things. That's number one. And number two, why do you say that quiet people have are equally valued in every situation to noisy people. Wouldn't there be some times when quiet people are more highly valued? Yes, yes, yes. So that was a general statement that I shouldn't have said. Yes, of course. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) But I just mean that there were so many times when I was taking these leadership classes and that's what they, and that's what they were saying to be careful of. And I found that a little lopsided. Do you believe in love at first sight? I've never experienced it. What about love at first bite? When people see someone on Tinder and they're like, oh, bite, B Y T E. Oh, oh. <laughs> Love at first bite. I'm like, I don't know. I've never really bit someone when I first met. Oh, bite. Uh, yes. I don't know about that either. Uh, but this kind of goes along with my list. Okay. This list was created by Vanessa Van Edwards. Oh, I know Vanessa. What? I know Vanessa. She was in National Speakers Association with me. And actually, a couple of months ago, and I, we never crossed paths. But she was recording her LinkedIn Learning course at the same time I was recur- uh, recording one of my LinkedIn Learning courses down in Carpentry on the studio. Oh my god! Yeah, so I because- picked it so you could tear it apart, which is a lot of times why I get these lists. I I'll know. find something like that. So tear it apart is just apply a curious lens, right? Of exactly. Course. I'm just gonna read it, and then you can say what you want to say about it. I won't put my opinions. Well, in Well, yeah. It. Wait. Okay. Read it, and then you'll put your opinions. In well, you'll probably again. I'm expressive, so you'll probably hear it in my voice. <laughs> Eight science-backed strategies to make a lasting first impression. Ooh, science-backed. The first one is about what you were talking about earlier: is that we quickly make these immediate assumptions of someone mm-hmm. the minute we meet them it's like this quick snapshot judgment of mm-hmm. who they are and she calls it thin slicing oh yeah i uh, thin slicing that was i know from thin slicing you know from thin slicing i know from thin slicing and i'd like to thin slice my thighs <laughs> thin slicing <laughs> it refers to an to observing a small selection of an interaction like and they talk about it usually less than five minutes which seems like a long time. yeah i'm so gonna say less than that time. that's not and thick then being, like, that's thick slicing that's thick slicing and then being able to accurately draw conclusions about the emotions and attitudes of the people interacting i think it was um it was actually first recorded in 1992 based on this meta-analysis like taking all these studies and Studying all these studies. Grab a little bit of this. a a little bit of of that. that. Yeah. And it's been applied to many, many domains and various types of judgment, which is how I kind of came to know about it. What does she say about thin slicing? Well, researchers believe, researchers. from P U. Yeah. Believe that it's a a survival mechanism that thin slicing can help us decide if someone is a friend or a foe right away. So maybe a fight, fight or flight kind of situation. So you're saying that if we don't quickly judge people,
1: we're screwed.
0: Then we are not gonna survive. (laughs) That would tell me that implicit (laughs) bias, if you get rid of it, you're dead. (laughs) I mean, okay. Needless to say, a sort of fact. (laughs) Okay. Number two is self-evaluation. When you are planning on going to an event or you're planning on going to a meeting or an interview. You really should take a look at yourself and see how you might put it out there to be perceived, which is also what we were talking about a little bit earlier. So, Becky, when people first meet you, they think you are what? It depends on where I go. I mean, I don't, like you said, I would never say that I care exceedingly much about how people perceive me, but I would never say that I don't care. At all, and sometimes I care more than other times when I need to accomplish something. Yeah, if I'm, I think you're pretty strategic. When I go to the grocery store, I might, if I worked out and I'm in white workout clothes, I could run to the grocery store. Wait, are you running? Are you wearing sweats? No, I mean, like if I'm wearing workout pants. Oh, because you know sweats. what Barclay would say: no self-esteem. You have no self-esteem. That you're wasn't Barclay. Sweatpants. That was that was Valerium. I thought that was No, no, no Valerium was ESL. people who wear sweatpants have no self-esteem oh that's so cute yes but uh, no I I wouldn't wear sweats because I don't wear sweats working out so I wouldn't wear heavy yeah I get too sweaty so I would wear my workout gear if I had to run and get groceries or something but if I was just lounging at home without makeup I wouldn't run to the grocery store I would get myself presentable do I care what people think I could say I do it for myself, but I don't know where myself ends and other people begin. I don't even believe in the self. So I couldn't really, you know, <laughs> you know, but I, but if, and if I was going someplace else, I will tell you this. And there is a lot of research, not just from PU and not just sort of acts of up. If there was one takeaway that I would want people to hear from this podcast, this would be it. There is a lot of research in the judgment and decision-making field in about medical decisions. It's a big thing. Oh, I was going to particularly in the UK, where they have socialized medicine. The thing about socialized medicine that people don't talk about that's a benefit is the research that comes when it's backed by a unified uh, organization like a government. There's so much research that you can derive if it's not necessarily just driven by capitalism. So that's an aside. But what they found was that people who are perceived as having kind of more um, affluence and a greater network have a higher level of treatment. Maybe it's because they fear that they're going to be much more capable of suing them for malpractice. But time and time again, just like they've even said if you go into the doctor and let's say you're worried about cancer, that most people don't want to say the C word because they're afraid if they speak it, it's like Voldemort. But what they found, <laughs> seriously, but what they found is that when you say, listen, I want to come in here and make sure that I don't have cancer, the people who, the, the patients who mention cancer, tend to get a cancer diagnosis when there is, in fact, cancer statistically significantly sooner, which leads to better treatment. So I always tell the kids, you know, if you are, obviously, if you're picked up in an ambulance, you're not going to be, but I would say that who goes with you, if you are deathly ill, and you, to the extent that you can get yourself looking good, you should, because how you are perceived as taking care of yourself can affect your treatment. treatment. And you can say that that's not fair. And you can spend your whole life talking about how it's not fair and it's not you were saying that that doctors if they perceive you as more affluent they'll give you better treatment it's not necessarily that you have to be more affluent it's it's just that if you dress nicer if you present yourself better you can't throw something in someone's face and then Try to train them into perceiving you and yelling at them for perceiving you a certain way. I mean, it it, it doesn't, I mean, you can, but again, we've mentioned this before, those convinced against their will are of the same opinions still. still. Mm -hmm. And here's the other thing. Complete strangers in one study could pick up on who's trustworthy, kind, or compassionate in 20 seconds when all they saw was a person sitting in the chair or listening to someone talk. So people can't see genes. So there's got to be something else going on when listeners who got the highest ratings for empathy, it turned out that they possessed a higher level of this particular kind of oxytocin receptor gene known as the GG genotype. Love her. Gigi. So now you get rated with a higher level of empathy because you have a higher level of an oxytocin receptor gene. I mean, okay, that's we also have to realize that no matter how much we are aware, there might be some other things you might actually have to compensate because that's are- what I mean. Yeah. You be aware so that you have to compensate. If you have this thin slicing, thin slicing. you should remember that. That's how you get I have sc- a horrible memory. But if you are aware that that happens, that immediate judgment of somebody else stop. Use your pogo stick, (laughs) (laughs) whatever your trigger uh, trigger thing is. To elevate curiosity. Exactly. Stop yourself from making those snap judgments and maybe give yourself a few more minutes to make an opinion about somebody else. With the exception of whether you judge them quickly as being someone dangerous. So that only works until it doesn't. Oh, God. We talked about that. Step three is to, when you're on your way, again, when you're on your way to go meet somebody or you're going to a meeting, you have to set your intentions. So what kind of interaction do you want from these people? What is the ideal, maybe pick out a word that is the first impression that you want to create. Again, having that awareness of how you want to be perceived, you should plan on that ahead of time. What would be the word that you would suggest to your debate people, your debate kids, that is the optimal adjective for winning a debate as perceived by the judges. Now, bear in mind, I, you know, some of the judges are know nothing about what they're judging and some are very sophisticated judges. And right. that was one of the things that I thought was really, when I first judged, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And you're like, well, some do and some don't. And the kids need to know that. So what would be the adjective that you would recommend if the kids were open for the judge to perceive them as? Articulate. Articulate. Okay. That would be the number one. I think so. I want my kids to learn how to think, not what to think. Right. And a great way to present and to present it in tor- in a tournament when you're being judged, I think being articulate is important. When you show up to a tournament and you're one of the coaches and you're meeting with these other, what would be in a, like? Let's say it's the first time. Mm -hmm. They don't know you. Now they know you, your old hat. But let's say say you show up to nationals Mm -hmm. and they don't know you at all. What would be the adjective that you would, what would be your intended adjective for them to come away with in the first impression? Which is like the first anywhere from seven seconds to five minutes, depending on the sort of fact. I know I have something like that. I don't know what word it would be. I like to be professional. I like a lot of the, a lot of the coaches dress pretty schlubba dicka and I always dress. I feel that if the kids are expected to dress up, then the coach should dress up too. Mm. Um, I'm not very social. I don't like laugh and joke and talk about the kids and stuff like that. So I, I like to have a certain persona of professionalism. Next one is stand in a launch position. So your posture is in a powerful because your stance is important. It says something about you that more so than your posture. And it said, well, and so if your toes are always pointed toward the person you're speaking with, that's a good thing. If your hands are always visible and expressive while you're speaking, if your arms are loose and so there's space. My between. arms are really loose, especially <laughs> the, under my the Not the Hadassah floppy arms. They flap, flap, flap. So, <laughs> so I am so those powerful. Bingo arms. Bingo arms? Bingo arms. I call them Hadassah arms. Or Mahjong. <laughs> I have that. I have loose <laughs> well, arms. Well, so you have the proper Not loose stance. on the top. Loose on the bottom. <laughs> if your chin is neutral. Now my chin can't really be which, neutral. Which chin? <laughs> i think you should specify (laughs) well okay in 2012 amy cuddy did her ted talk on the benefits of power posing i mean it has over 50 million views it was one of the most downloaded ted talks in history so what do you think is the power pose no 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 Think, think wonder woman oh yes that Is the power pose. Yeah. And what she. What she said. Was that. People who sat in the high power pose. Felt more powerful. And performed better in mock interviews. Than those who had not. And also had higher levels of testosterone and lower levels of cortisol. And all I could think was higher lo- levels of testosterone. I don't want chin hair sprouting just cause I'm sitting <laughs> with my hands on my hips, but she actually was a challenge. Her research was challenged because it was not found to be replicatable in the same way that she conducted this research. But I think she came back and refuted that. Mm. And sometimes research makes so much intuitive sense to us that we don't care if it makes laboratory sense. Yeah. When you say, it, sometimes you say the easiest answer is not always the right answer or the only answer. Right. But when we hear research that really makes sense to how we see the world, we kind of, we hear it repeated over and over and over again. I don't know that we really care if it's replicatable. I don't even know if we care if it's science, if it's like really true, because if it feels true and it's easy, it's easy, it's easy. Then I think we are, we tend to believe it. So I don't know where it, what where she stands, but a lot of people. I'm sure she stands with in a very powerful, powerful pose. <laughs> Young adults can be surprisingly accurate in making Inferences about people from their faces. But the question is, and this I'm going to put to you, mm. there is a question about dementia. Do you think that people, older people who are experiencing signs of dementia, lose the ability to make accurate predictions and inferences from people's faces? Well, it depends on where in their brain is it's deteriorating. Right. So, yes, for some, and for some, no. And that's actually the science. Science! Supports exactly what you said. (sighs) Finally. Yeah. Another step is to avoid bad days. And this is true, and I can totally identify this, when you go to an event or meet up with friends or something, and you're in a bad mood or you're depressed, it is so obvious, even if you think, like, you're putting a smile on your face and you're trying people know. Becky, you always call me on it every single time. I oh, know you were depressed. I'm like, yeah, but you have tells though. You say that I laugh nervously. Yeah. You'll say something and go, <laughs> which is so weird. Cause I have no idea what that is. Yeah. You'll say, yeah, you know, ginger didn't, Drove to such and such. <laughs> like, I hate that. I'm like, oh God, you are depressed. you know what? You can't help it. You're depressed. So. Yeah. I but go, they said, what's what? so funny? <laughs> <laughs> oh God. So sympathetic. But if you watch like a fun YouTube video Kitty or. Cats? The Kitty, Kitty cats always work for Dane. Or call a friend that's funny, watching something funny. Then. Then you can go out afterwards, although I don't really believe that because when you're depressed, none of that really helps. Maybe that's just when you're in a bad mood, but when you have depression, it's totally different. Yeah. So when you have depression, people with depression should just stay home. That's her advice. Well, that's what I do. <laughs> that's her advice. I become a shut-in. <laughs> well, at least you don't subject other people well, to your annoying depression. Frankly, that's why I do it. Yeah. Well, see, that's nice. That's very see, nice. See, I'm a considerate person. You are. You are. Uh, Think about your ornaments. Okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm shimmying my ornaments right now. This chair is making a lot of noise as I'm shimmying my ornaments. I think it might be time to invest in something other than card table chairs. Yeah, and actually, my butt really hurts today on this chair for some reason. We're going to go and make an investment. I think we should. Go find some nice cushy chairs. What do you mean ornaments like the clothes Clothes, makeup, jewelry, watches. Are you ready for the sort of hack? Yes. Are you ready for the sort of fact? <laughs> I am very ready for the sort of fact. Although I, I thought this whole episode was a sort of fact, according to Pu, eighty-seven percent of all first impression and microexpression research fell under the distinct category of sort of fact. Thanks for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes for every episode of ACLR and links to all resources mentioned at applycuriositylab.com forward slash blog. It's there that we'll wait to read your answers to each week's Curiosity Bite. Two, in order to avoid missing curiosity-bitten conversations, Subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and all the other spots that podcasts hang out and wait to be discovered. Toss up a review, especially if you have nice things to say. Finally, for all things Apply Curiosity, including information on workshops and your free membership to the tribe of the curious, go to applycuriositylab.com. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.